Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, produced by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on producer, performer, and educator Da Vinci. As a founding member and producer of Orlando-based hip-hop group Soliloquists of Sound, as well as the electro-soul duo Chakra Khan, Da Vinci first gained notoriety by using multiple drum machines in ways the world had never seen before. His frenetic finger drumming, sonic dynamism, and innovative use of music technology have led to stage and studio collaborations with such artists as Miss Lauren Hill, Nas, MF Doom, and LP of Run the Jewels, and many, many others. As a public speaker and educator, Da Vinci shares his passion for creative health by helping others refine their own creative process through his one-on-one coaching service, studiosensei.com. In our talk, we explore Da Vinci's philosophies and methods, which led the conversation to some very interesting places. Enjoy. Thank you for making time for this. It's great to, to speak to you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. By way of level setting, could you do like sort of the most uncomfortable thing that I ask people to do, which is could you give me the 30-second treatment on who is this person, Da Vinci? Where'd you come from? Who are you? What do you do? 30 seconds. All right. You could take your time. No, I I, I want to – I like the challenge, 30 seconds. So at five minutes. All right, cool. All right. So I'm most known for being – an artist, a performing artist, as well as a music producer, about 20 years ago or so, was using drum machines in a way that at that time not a lot of people were. Mm-hmm. I was taking them out of the studio and being very animated and crazy performing with them live, up to three at a time, actually sometimes more. Technology enthusiast, so I was like, always like a mad scientist on stage and a music producer with my hip-hop supergroup, Soliloquists of Sound, along with my family, who I consider family, Swamberger, Alexandra, and my wife, Tanya. And for the last 20 years, we have not only toured the world together, but we have lived together. And actually, Swam is moving out today. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to be an empty nester? <laughs> uh, well, I, there's plenty of people here. I got my family here too, so my two kids and everything. I wanted to be a scientist before I was interested in music, and hip hop really caught my ear and my my innovative nature and my sensibilities. And I followed a career in that, inspiring people in that realm, and then also realizing later that my real passion was the thing that I was taught originally, which was this pursuit of flow. My father started teaching me martial arts before I could walk or talk. So I I later realized how monumental and important that was to me in my life and creating a framework to work from, both physically and mentally. Between that and my sensibilities to want to help people on an emotional level, 
I started a company called Studio Sensei, where I teach, train, and help others obtain creative wellness and intuitive fluency. Thank you for that. That's that's super helpful. And you sort of dovetailed very nicely into one of my really first questions for you is, as I was learning about you and learning about your background and learning about your current work, this phrase creative health keeps appearing in the in the material I read about you. And what is creative health and, and what does it mean for you and why is it important? The term I use when describing what I help people with, with through Studio Sensei is creative wellness. It's a term that's it's a bit of a Trojan horse for me to just be able to get in there and help in a more profound way than if I were to just show you how to make beats or, or be able to perform. While I do that stuff too, I feel that the support systems for creative people in particular are severely lacking in the world. And I think a big part of that bleeds over into everyday life and, and people who don't consider themselves creative even though I consider everyone a creative in some sort of way in the way that people aren't fully supported or trained on how to trust themselves and follow their intuitive voice. And certainly in the creative space, that's also true and not, and and to add on to that, people aren't, are also not taught how to value their work when they do follow that voice and how to how it fits into the world, both business and otherwise. Being a creative person myself and recognized as a creative person professionally, I, I use that as a way to get my foot in the door to, to discuss what I think are far more fundamental topics. From kind of an internal place, I guess I could consider what I do in my work with Studio Sensei as kind of like behavioral therapy branded towards creative people. I can't say it's exactly that because I feel like there's places that are lacking in most clinical approaches. Not to say that I don't condone or even promote it. I think therapy is a fantastic thing, especially behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectic behavioral therapy. I think like getting professional help in all forms is is a fantastic thing and I promote it wholeheartedly across the board. But I do feel that from an academic standpoint, a lot of these things are taught to be treated as a focus on disorder as opposed to focusing on order. There's a lot of energy and time spent studying and identifying disorder. And there's so many different ways to do that. Bipolar, depression, manic depressive, personality, borderline, like so many, right? A lot of that work is is focused on disorder. And just in general, I think culture moves that way too, where our first instincts are to like find the bad guy, find the bad thing. And I'm I'm just really interested in normalizing solutions and showing ways, not the way, but ways to order and examples of order. Because just like there's many ways to disorder and many ways to be within disorder or in disorder, I think that there's many ways to to be in order as well. That's what creative wellness is to me. Basically, wellness. 
<laughs> in a creative context <laughs> yeah and and i'm 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 not one to hide this but you know branding is a thing that's kind of necessary to to direct a focus and to reach people and since i'm a creative person i'm, I'm more or less just branding on that side of things to play to my strengths so that i can reach as many people as possible but to me it's open to everybody i think everyone's at least a creator of their own day-to-day -day life it's not, it's not a lie, but it is focused. We have quite a lexicon for categorizing and labeling disorder. So that, that very much resonates with what you're saying there. And I wonder, what would be the lexicon for order? What would be this? What, is it just about accepting your unique personality traits or mode of being? Like what, what's the, what is the, what's the mirror image of not only disorder, but the the classifications of disorder, which seem to be so easy to point to. The lexicon we're, we're, we're rather familiar with. The unfortunate part about it is so much of the vocabulary within that lexicon is taken for granted. I, I, I could say self-trust is a prime meaty word that that's a huge part of order, right? But if, if you were to show something like a meme to somebody where it's like, yeah, trust yourself, or that was the point of it, everyone would be like, yeah. Of course. But if you ask them, well, how do you do that? Yes. <laughs> how, do you, how do you trust yourself? I think the answers would be pretty, in most cases, general and obscure and, and kind of like answering with the, the question itself. Like, well, you just trust yourself, you know, that type of thing. The lexicon is there. I just think the pathway to the concepts has not been explicitly identified. And certainly not practiced consciously. What I try to do in defining order, in defining ways to order, is be specific and pragmatic about the approach to any one of these concepts that you might already know, but not fully know how to get to. Self-trust and, and following your gut and not comparing yourself to other people and so many different things. So is your work to an extent about helping people develop the practice to be able to do those things? Is that what makes it real, having the practice? I'm struggling to, to draw the line between, I get what you say. You think you're struggling, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I'll shut up. No, no, I'll trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of my work. No, you got it. Yeah, uh, you said the magic word for me, which is practice. And that's exactly the, the way I go about it. Practice is one of these words that has like a really, it activates and triggers like really great feelings to me because it's just, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student, I'm a worshiper of practice, you know. Mm. I think practice is incredible. The way I go about it, there's a few tenets, there's a few laws, there's a few nucleus load-bearing walls that, that exist at the center of what I teach called the sustainable practice method. One of them is that everything is a skill. I have this saying that God is a skill. And what I mean by that is a few things, but essentially what I'm saying is that every single thing is a skill, everything. Depression, happiness, sadness, soccer, basketball, baseball, being a good communicator, communicating poorly. Communicating poorly is a skill. Communication itself is a skill, but the real skills are what are you 
skillful at communicating well or are you skillful at communicating poorly? And I think the focus on everything as a skill is really sobering and useful in a pragmatic approach. It's very practical to think of things this way. Because if you have somebody, I always use this example. If you think of somebody who is trying to lose weight, who, who wants to lose weight, and they, and they give it a go and they, they come back and they're like, well, I'm just, I'm just not good at losing weight. There's always exceptions to this, but in most cases I could say, well, I don't think that that's true. I think that it's more true that you're just really good at gaining weight or that you're better at holding on to weight, right? Or staying at a particular weight. People think that just because it's not what they set out to do, that it's not a skill, but everything is a skill. The formula that makes that true, the, the components of everything being a skill is that all time spent doing anything, you're practicing getting better at a skill because all practice leads to getting better at something. Bad practice leads to getting better at the bad version of what you're practicing and so on and so on. If you want to use words like bad and good, but uh, I like to just think of it as productive towards your interest or not productive towards your interest. When you think of things like that, things become a lot more approachable instead of saying, oh, I'm, just, I'm not good at losing weight. Essentially, you're saying, I'm trying this thing and I'm not succeeding in it. I'm not getting the results for the work that I'm putting in. And that's a pretty dire situation. Like no one wants to work hard at something and not get the result. And that goes against all dogma that we kind of base our behaviors off of. That can make our whole worlds unravel. The people that believe that that's what's happening, it does. And then they start getting stuck in their head and then disorder gets to thrive. When you think about everything being a skill and all time spent doing anything, you're getting better at it. And that being law, well, then all that it benefits you to do is look at your result, and then you can reverse engineer what you've been practicing. It's never that you're like bad at a thing so much as you're just better at a counterintuitive skill, a skill that you don't want. If you're better at a skill that you don't want, then you can look at it like, well, I'm good at this because I've, I've just spent so much time practicing it. I, I'd much prefer to be better at this skill than that one. So if I'm good at this because I've spent this much time practicing it, well, then it stands to reason that if I just move some of my finite and fungible time and energy over to the practice of the skill I'd prefer to have, I'll, I'll get better at this one and this one won't get practiced anymore. As opposed to the alternative, which is what a lot of people do, I'm not good at this thing, which comes with that kind of dire circumstance like, well, the world doesn't make sense because I've, I've been trying and it doesn't work. Well, then there's something wrong with me. And then all the weight that comes with beating yourself up, this other skill that we all tend to be pretty good at, or most of us do, and guilt and, and all the other th weight that comes with that inaccurate reasoning for what's going down. So much weight, so much extra weight that you can't effectively reroute from that place and you kind of get stuck there. Whereas if you just thought it like, well, <laughs> I'm not seeing results here. Where am I seeing results? Oh, I'm just better at this. Okay. Well then just move the practice over to this far much of a lighter thing to 
comprehend or to approach than this thing that's layered upon layered with doubt and self-questioning and all these other things that come with it. So you mentioned it, you got it, which is practice, practice. And a lot of the things that I teach is exactly what you asked. I have courses in the works and, and tons of workshops in the books that I label how to practice this. And it's usually concepts that people take for granted, how to practice self-trust, right? How to practice not worrying. That framing, I've been sitting with it since you first stated it, the, the notion of everything's a practice, because I think back to an example in my own life. I once lost 70 pounds mm. and it was after years of not being able to lose weight. And what was the issue? I wasn't good at losing weight, but I was real. I knew how to, I knew how to put weight on. How I learned it, who knows, but I knew how to do it and I had developed a practice around it. It's very interesting. It's really landing profoundly for me because I knew that the only way I was going to be able to do it was if I had a system. Yeah. And that to me, system in that context is synonym for a practice. Yeah, absolutely. I have this little reminder here of different things I like to tell myself and remind myself. And the last one here is more systems, less goals. Reverse engineering the goal into a way to get it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we talk about it a lot in business. It's like we focus on the inputs because then we just get the outputs. We don't, if you focus on the outputs, you're stressed out. Why am I not at the goal yet? Why didn't I make the money yet? Why didn't I do the thing yet? But if I'm doing the inputs, the output just happens. Yeah. It's an interesting thing too, just to add on to that, is that we're so good at ignoring practice and, and paying attention to the goal that even the idea of introducing, embracing, practicing into your life requires practice because people think that you can just start practicing and change your – because mindsets and perspectives are skills too. This is why I think like the secret exists. I, I think there's deeper levels to it, but I, I think people often forget the very practical levels to it, which is like when you imagine yourself in a particular situation, you're, you're practicing – the perspective of being there. Mm -hmm. When you practice the perspective of being there, you're really good at essentially being there because our mind doesn't know the difference if you're there or not. When you practice something enough, you actually transport yourself there eventually. And you start behaving in the way that a person that would be in that position behaves and therefore you get the results that you get. But when it comes to practice itself, we have not really practiced the mindset of practice being the way as much as we've practiced other things, as much as we practice being in a culture of plug and play and give it to me now, and there's a magic pill for it. What the sustainable practice method is, is essentially a way to teach people how to practice loving practicing. So our, set, our statement is like one of my taglines is practice loving the practice because it's still all about practicing. And in that way, it gets to be a lot lower stakes. If, if all of it is practice, then, then you're, you're fine. My father always taught me about martial arts. He said that three things. He said something you'll practice for the rest of your life, you'll never master, and you'll hope to never use. <laughs> wow. And essentially what it does is it, is it reminds you that it's all about the practice. If something's all about the practice, well, then your best bet is to love practicing whatever you whatever you want to practice because that creates consistency and the love creates 
sustainability because people want success in whatever they're practicing. They want to be good at the skill that they're practicing. Everyone does. So if they want a particular goal, well, the goal is to practice that thing. But if they really want to succeed in that goal of obtaining that skill, well, then consistent practice is the answer to that. How do you get consistent practice, though? How do you consistently practice something? Well, loving it and damn near being obsessed with it is a way to, like, really consistently practice something and therefore succeed at it practicing the skill of loving practice. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting because you see that manifest a lot with with children when they pick up an instrument or they start a sport and there are certain instances where the kid feels like they should be able to do it. And if they can't do it, they lose interest and they get discouraged. They haven't learned yet that like just because you were able to get up off the floor and figure out walking doesn't mean you can figure out dribbling or the piano or whatever else, like it takes practice <laughs> and time. It's interesting too, because I think they, that's a learned behavior. And it, it's, it's at least at the very least on a deeper level, like a generational skill, like a deeply generational skill that we've pr kind of practiced so much that it gets imparted onto our, our babies and our kids where this idea of the impatience of achievement, right? If you see a baby try to walk, most of them, I mean, like I said, there's exceptions to everything, but most of them don't really get frustrated. They're just kind of, they're just kind of trying stuff. They're super curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no real expectation there, right? They, they just kind of all of a sudden do it. And we're over here like, yay, yay, yay. Or do it again, Ellen. They're like, uh oh, you know, all these <laughs> things were assigning reaction to this very natural process that they would be doing anyway. And I think it's that assigned reaction that they start to learn too. So then they start to learn like, oh, this is, should be this way. And oh, and it felt good to get rewarded for this and, and those things. And then obviously we, we have a, a screen culture and then that promotes a lot of like counterintuitive skills against practice. We'll be back with more Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now back to Spotlight On. I feel like we could spend hours just in this realm, but the next point I want to tie all of this into is how do these notions that we've talked about so far, creative wellness, building practice, something you referred to as allowing, not controlling, how do all those things feed into the artist finding their true self, the artist who is not the mimic? who's not just the sum total of everything they've ingested. And, and, and are these things related? Is there a correlation in your mind between having these practices and developing a voice? I think these things are so essentially fundamental that they're related to everything. Again, whether we're conscious of it or not, they play an under, underlying role in the foundation of all the behaviors that we get to experience and, and, and enact ourselves. Specifically to the question of how do these concepts lead to an artist's developing their own voice creatively, right? That's the question, right? There's kind of like a North Star or, or a true North here that exists within this method I teach or the way that I teach these things or the way I bring them together. And that is, it's that your intuitive voice is the most trustworthy thing on the planet. It's never wrong, never. Hmm. First of all, when I say that, you say, hmm. What are your thoughts on it? It's profound. I think we've 
maybe been taught to believe that's not the case, that we need reason, mm -hmm. that it's not intuit and then verify. It's let the data tell you what to do. Sure. There's a lot of counter skills or skills that seem to contradict the skill of what I call intuitive fluency. And intuitive fluency basically takes that idea and, and gives a system to follow it. Intuitive fluency is the skill that allows you to follow that intuitive voice. So it, it's exactly like what it sounds. It's, it's the, the ability to understand and read and then accurately interpret your intuitive voice into action. Because that's, that's the rub there, accurately interpret. And that's the skill that I think is the most criminally underpracticed and underidentified skill in the world, at least in the world I've been privy to. The counter to that is that people often are taught how to misread their intuitive nudges. And then that can lead to a lot of problems. And it does every second <laughs> yeah. in, in great number. So you think about that, what it means to misread the nudge of the most powerful, trustworthy voice on this planet, your own intuitive voice. That's crazy. That's like, that's got some really drastic and, and, and problematic repercussions. Because if you think about like, okay, okay, cool. You kind of grow up trusting it implicitly anyway, because what else do you have to listen to but this compulsion that says, go this way, right? It, when you're coming up, like it just says, go this way. And then you have people around you that's like, no, 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 that's not the way, or stop that, you're going too fast, or blah, blah, blah. As a kid, you know, you're kind of taught to obscure the notions of where you're, you're intended to go. In some cases, and, in, and it's actually even taught that it's implicitly wrong and, and rude or bad, and that you're bad for following it. For example, terrible twos with, with kids. They call it the terrible twos where kids are, are really defiant and, and you're saying like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And then they're like, hey, hey and they do it like the cat that pushes the, <laughs> the vase off the table, right? There's nothing terrible about it. This is a developmental necessity among children, among human beings that they must go through because this is the time in their life when they're starting to realize they're a separate individual from you and that they do have a choice and they're testing the repercussions of their choices. And if you villainize their experimentation and if you do it in a particular way, what you're teaching them is that their instincts are wrong. It's ugly. Like that's, and that happens all the time. And it's very innocent in the way that it happens. Did you brush your teeth? Yeah, I did. Did you? Whoa. That's a sentence of like, okay, you're teaching me the very person who's set to be the living archetype of what I will grow into, an adult, is questioning me, not trusting me, not saying that what I say is right. So obviously, as we grow older, our parents' actual voices become the voice of our inner voice. So then we carry on this self-mistrust and self-questioning beyond. Can I pull on that thread for a second? Let's go. In the, in the scenario you just, the little example you articulated, mm -hmm. a lot of times that conversation's had because the kid's mischievous and didn't brush their teeth and the parent knows it. What's the right way for the parent to react that is not building shame and distrust, but acknowledges the fact that 
the child needs both the ability to lie, but the understanding that the lie isn't right. Or is that whole construct wrong? Am I framing it wrong? Well, I think the only thing that's could use better language in the ask there is you said, what's the right way to do? I think there's a bunch of right ways to do it, right? I don't think there's one. For example, if my daughter, I have two daughters, my older daughter, six years old, hey, did you brush your teeth? And she goes, yep. I'm like, cool, let me check. Or let me, let me do a breath test. You know what I mean? And then I'll, I'll be like, whoa, I got to show you how to do that better. You know, or something like that. That's one way where it's kind of like you're setting it up. It, that's practice involved there too. And that's one thing that I try to do with my kids is try to really teach this idea of practice from the start. Because it's natural for my daughter to get like really upset when she can't do something right or when she doesn't do it right the first time. I just try to meet it with like, no, it's awesome. Like, because if you don't make these mistakes, you don't get better at it. Right. And I just kind of try to teach her what I know. That's the trick is like, like with that whole brush your teeth thing or, or any lies, like you, you'd have to be aware of what's happening at that moment with any answer in the first place so that you could be aware of like what you're imparting on to your child when you do that. And sometimes it is fun to like playfully like call out like, ah, are you messing with me? Like that type of thing and make it more innocent as opposed to like this thing that becomes a question of their integrity or your trust in them. The interesting thing about that approach is that it works in either scenario. If the child brushed their teeth, yeah. All you're simply saying is that I might be able to help you be better at it. And if they didn't brush their teeth, all you're saying is I might be able to help you be better at it. It's not loaded. And then there's things like to, that you get past that and then you're like, okay, cool. Now I can create like actual systems that do this for them. And, and there's so many options out there in the world today. Like there's things for my daughter to brush her teeth where she can do it alongside like an app or something, you know, and you kind of set those things up ahead of time so that it's becomes more a, a thing of their choice as opposed to them just following your directions. There's so many different ways to approach that both on the front and the back end of how it goes. But just if there were one right approach, it would just be a dynamic approach of, of being very aware of the example you're setting for your child <laughs> through the example that you set with yourself. I think that's like the key. Yeah. Just to like circle back to your the answer to your question, the ability to accurately read the nudge is is tantamount to all of these things. Yeah, and I think if people are taught a way how to practice that, the steps how to practice reading the nudge act accurately, or what I again what I call intuitive fluency, if they're taught that, well, then everything else in their life falls into place. Because, like I said, the most trustworthy voice on this planet. Is that, and if you believe in God, well, cool. That's this voice through which God speaks. If you don't believe in God, okay, cool. Like that's the most trustworthy voice. Like that's where it ends. Your intuitive voice being the most trustworthy voice on the planet, and then you get to clear things up, because a lot of this self mistrust comes from this fundamental misreading of the nudge, and then this inherent misidentification of the, the where it went wrong. See, a lot of people, when they misread a nudge and they go the way that they were like, ah, oh, man, this is wrong. This is not it. Are either 
not in the wrong because they just haven't gone further far enough yet and see how it played out and really trust it or they just mis- misread the nudge then they like villainize their intuitive voice or whatever they call it like i followed my gut and it led me in the wrong way it's like no it's more so that you misinterpreted what it was saying because just like that game whisper down the alley they used to call it Chinese telephone or whatever, where you like whisper something in somebody's ear and then it goes around. And by the time it comes back, what you said pineapple over here, it's penguin over here or something wildly different. The same thing happens with that voice. There's the initial intuitive voice. It kind of gets delegated to all these other pathways that we've taught to go through. And most of it to just to cut to the chase is involved in overthinking. Yeah. So self-questioning and all these different things, by the time it comes out, it could be a completely distorted message from the original one. So you never have to blame your intuition. You can always rely that it's true. Then at that point, it's, well, you don't blame anything except for realize that, oh, I'm just better at misinterpreting it because that's what I was taught to practice. All I either do is get out of the way. I, I want to choose my language carefully around this question so that we don't get stuck in the semantics of it. <laughs> so forgive me. Well, all good. One of the examples that comes to mind or a counterexample that comes to mind of that is how do you factor for the deviant? How do you factor for the person whose intuitive voice is telling them it's okay to do something grossly inappropriate? In your model, is it that that's not what the voice is saying and they're misinterpreting it or that it is what the voice is saying? I'm curious as to what you think about that. It's a great question. Because like I said, there's exceptions to everything, right? And not everything operates within a vacuum. It's not like everyone's upbringing or or chemical balance or general physiology or physicality. or It's not like all factors are the same with everybody. Let's say that like a percentage of those that you're talking about, the deviant or or whatever, that are exceptions to this. Let's say like, let's cut it in half. It might be more than half, but let's say like half of those weren't born that way, but it was like a behavioral abuse or something. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Again, which comes from like what skill are is being imparted for them to practice. I think half of that leftover is about a natural sense of questioning and, and things that come up because the mind is vast. I mean, I have ridiculous, like the empathy perverse in me is very strong and that's because I've I've practiced being creative so much out of my life and thinking outside of the box, so to speak, and and thinking in certain ways that I can't really turn on the possibilities that pop up in my head. Some of it's really dark shit, but it's the understanding that I have a choice what to bring to the forefront. I even taught my daughter this is like, because she'll be like, I can't help, you know, seeing, because I, when I close my eyes, I see monsters. I'm trying to get to go to bed or something. And I'm like, okay, it's thoughts though. It's just thoughts. Maybe, maybe they're trying to tell you something. Why don't you look at them? You know, they're too scary. And I'm afraid what I'll say or what I'll do. I'm like, okay, well, think about your mind like this. Like it's, like it's a fish tank. And there's a bunch of different fish swimming around in there. And you get to choose which one you pick out and put in your bowl, right? Or think of it like the ocean, where there's all the fish and all the different sea life that's in there, and you get to choose which ones you want to put on display or 
or to bring out. Not a lot of people are taught that. And, and unfortunately, shame is used in its place in a lot of, in a lot of instances or, or some other thing that is taught to like combat what is naturally occurring in our mind or, or within us. And then naturally that exacerbates the thing, which is really unfortunate. You have these things that like could possibly just be quite natural for somebody and everyone has a different mix. Like some, maybe some people are prone to these thoughts for some reason or another, but if we're not taught how to be at peace with them, well, then they'll take over us and they come out in really distorted, overcompensating type of way. Without addressing the other percentage, just so far, it seems to reason that based upon, like my way of thinking about this means that these things are inherently true that I believe at least they are in my universe and, and they've been helpful to whoever else accepts them as being true, uh, that I've been able to help with. And again, like I, I didn't come up with a lot of these things. I came up with some of the language that make it, that make me understand it. But these ideas aren't far off from a lot of things that haven't existed for thousands of years, but it stands to reason by way of this thinking that it's not going to be just like that. <laughs> it's the practice of it. So if there are cases where the immediate adoption of practicing better intuitive fluency results in some deviant behavior or something like that, well, that person requires a different practice first. And not just that person, our society as a whole and parents and the way that we address these things requires us practicing something different fundamentally to make the space to be able to account for those differences in, in, in result. Accept that for sure. Yeah. To leave that realm for a moment, there's some other principles and concepts that are referred to in some of the coursework that you do that I'm super intrigued by. And one is... Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> they're slightly related, I think. I'll say them and then I'll shut up. Sure, sure. The difference between a musician and a producer, I love that notion, where, where they overlap and where they diverge, and what the repercussions of that are for a producer, performer, and an improviser. And how you've been able to bridge those things, which are normally, I think, although increasingly less so, I think, in electronic and produced music, but, but have traditionally been divergent. I would love if you could unpack some of that for me, because I think a lot of people might have that preconceived, like, are the people that make the beats for your favorite hip-hop album musicians? I've always just assumed they were but it's a different type of musician. Their instrument is the studio or is the deck or is the MacBook. But I would love to hear somebody who actually lives in that world, what your worldview is on that. It's interesting because I often have to preface with so many different caveats to, to this information because I come up from, I, I originally came from a hip hop upbringing musically and hip hop outside of maybe jazz and classical the purism in hip-hop is, is out of control <laughs> at least it was when i was coming up and purism and art they don't i don't think they really mix well personally because 
purism implies that there's some sort of rules and there's really not. But it really depends on what your definition of quote unquote the game is. And I think the same goes for the difference between musician, beat maker, producer, and all the different things. It really depends on the context in which you're speaking of such a thing. If we're in the 1970s, a music producer, well, we're talking about somebody who's by many, many and all means necessary in helping the artist and, and writers interpret the vision of a song and carrying it past the goal line, producing the song. Like, if you want to talk hip hop, like, Rick Rubin's a good example of that classical, like, or more traditional title of music producer where he's almost a vibe conjurer or the player yeah, coach yeah, more yeah. than, yeah, 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 more than the architect. Right. But he can do that too. And I think Rick Rubin comes with this kind of sensibility of, of vibe and all those other things, but it could be a lot more practical and stoic approach. Then you think of like late nineties to current time where you think about music producer, especially in a particular context. And it's literally the person just making the beat. Like if you're a beat maker, somebody who writes music using whatever to, to make the instrumental part, the musical non-vocal part of the song, well then that could be, considered a music producer and then if you just say beat maker well then that could mean a few things as well where it comes into whether you consider a mu music producer or beat maker or whatever whether you consider them a musician or not i think it's like well what was the definition of musician to you right is is the definition of a mu musician somebody who can pick up an instrument and play it in real time then if that's the definition, well, then a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square type of thing where, well, it, you could be a musician if you're a beat but not necessarily. You don't have to be. And then you have someone like myself and then the thousands of other people that exist that do this now where it's also somebody who can perform with the tools that were originally made for studio work and music production work, beat making and all that and can actually do something with it live. Yeah, I think that blurs the line between musician and, and beat maker a little bit more. So it's really a, a personario thing. The continuum is what I'm really hearing. Is it's, it's a continuum. And What's the context of the question and what's the point? Like, what do you want to get to? And, and then, then the answer can be, because like I said, since there's no rules inherently in music, the, those lines get kind of blurred. Yeah. And well, it's, it's also something, a word you used earlier, there may also be a generational component, generational in that the, the role of the producer has changed and generational of the judgment about what makes a musician may have changed. Because I would find it, I, I'd find it really hard to argue that a vocalist isn't a musician. I mean, certainly a tr there's trained vocalists who go to conservatory, but you're not going to tell me Frank Sinatra or Mick Jagger or Adam Levine, like those people are musicians. Yeah, it's it's a preposterous thing to suggest that they're not, <laughs> to me, you know. It creates needless division. Their instrument is their voice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could do four or five hours of this, um, but um, <laughs> I, I, I thank you for sharing your perspective and your wisdom, and maybe we'll get another chance someday, but thank you so much for making time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you and, and wanting to do it. And the conversation was great. Yeah, could keep going.
Maybe maybe we'll do a, a, a follow-up. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Thank you so much to Vinci and Studio Sensei. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.